My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. During the pandemic, open outdoor spaces like parks became even more essential. On top of being the usual place for a quiet walk to commune with nature, people were spending a lot more time outdoors. And those who lived near green spaces, especially in urban areas, appreciated them even more. Like the parks surrounding the Jamaica Plains section of Boston. We have probably more green space than any other neighborhood in Boston. This is Dr. Martha Kersher. She's a retired family medicine specialist who's lived in this Jamaica Plain neighborhood for more than three decades. We've got Jamaica Pond, we've got the Arboretum, we border Franklin Park, um, we have a wonderful Forest Hills Cemetery, which is beautiful. Um, it's a nice place to live. If you don't have a lot of disposable income, you live in a three-decker or one of those little tiny row houses. The green space makes for an idyllic urban respite, right? But Karsher says Franklin Park has become anything but. City of Boston leaders are looking for peace in Franklin Park. New tonight, take a look at this video near Franklin Park. It is wild scenes like this that have people living in that area raising concerns about safety. There's been groups of up to 100 dirt bikes, motorbikes, ATVs, motorized trikes. They tear around inside the park and the noise is terrible. And that's just during the day. Karsher says when the sun sets, the dirt bikes leave and Franklin Park gets a new set of revelers. Social media has really lent itself to the organizing of flash mobs of cars with these highly evolved sound systems. And there's often competition, it turns out, with who has the best sound system. And so people with these sound systems up to, again, 50 and 100 cars meeting as late in the morning as 2.30 will meet inside the park and play music at loudest possible volume. And so you, you feel the bass through the window, the music is incredibly loud. The overnight music, the daytime dirt bike din, this is all on top of the neighborhood's long-standing jet and plane noise from nearby Logan International Airport. Before the pandemic, if uh, the winds were right, we could have um, airplanes flying low, less than a minute apart, and it would start as early as 5.15 in the morning. Now, Karsher says the airplane noise did recede during the pandemic, but the dirt bikes and partiers, they got worse. She suffered from sleepless nights and groggy days. Karsher says she used to treat patients for noise-related symptoms like this, and now she's one of those patients. You know, I spend the entire day pretty badly sleep-deprived, and so, you know, I've got headaches and, you know, I just, I don't feel well. Unwanted sound is not just a nuisance either. An increasing body of research links noise to negative health impacts. 
And that mounting evidence is putting pressure on policymakers, architects, and designers to control urban noise. I tell you, if anything could drive me out, it would be, it would be the sounds. It's the noise. From The Wall Street Journal, this is The Future of Everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, lowering the volume of our cities and how to sculpt the urban soundscape of the future. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Studies have been piling up for decades that link noise pollution to bad health. But when you talk to people dealing with noise, they don't talk about how unhealthy they feel. They'll just tell you how mad the noise makes them. And it's the same for researchers who deal with noise and also happen to study it. I had um, the unique opportunity to live close to, to railway station, living close to the German autobahn and being now close to the Frankfurt airport. And, you know, this, this annoyance reaction, uh, it makes you angry. This is Dr. Tom Munzel, chief of cardiology at the University Medical Center in Mainz, Germany. He says that sudden loud noises can damage the ear. But he says the anger and annoyance that's triggered by a low, constant din of noise, that can actually have even more lasting cardiovascular side effects. This second way of of noise uh, is uh, disturbing your concentration. It's disturbing your sleep and you're reacting with annoyance. And this means stress for your body. In his research, Munzel found that this response is actually a clue that the body's sympathetic nervous system in charge of the fight-or-flight response is being activated. Now, in a crisis, that response can keep you alive. But activated too often, Munzel says it can have long-term consequences. Lipids go up, blood sugar go up, blood pressure go up. And if you have this for years, you get classical cardiovascular disease like stroke, coronary artery disease, myocardial infarction, and heart failure. In a 2013 study, Munzel found that nighttime aircraft noise had a direct negative impact on cardiovascular health. He's since published other papers connecting noise pollution and disease. And his findings line up with work from another group of researchers from Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Case Western Reserve University. They recorded visual images of volunteers' brains that had changed as a consequence of exposure to things like road and aircraft noise. Those PET scans showed that the louder the sound was, the more that fight-or-flight part of the brain, called the amygdala, lit up. They demonstrated that amygdala activity goes along with inflammation of vessels, and this is coupled to major adverse cardiovascular events. As these studies pile up, the link between noise pollution and negative health effects is becoming harder to ignore. But what is noise anyway, and how do researchers study it? 
There are two primary ways that we routinely measure sound. The first metric uses decibels or dBs for short. And if a decibel goes up a little, the perceived loudness can go up a lot more. So 60 dB is the level when people are talking. 70 is about how loud your dishwasher gets. Though if you have an older one like me that we're listening to now, it's probably a bit higher. We start to get concerned about hearing when we get up to 85 decibels, which is about as loud as uh, a gas-powered lawnmower. This is Rick Neitzel. He's an associate professor of environmental health sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. In 2015, he co-authored an economic assessment of U.S. environmental noise as a cardiovascular health hazard. The analyses suggested that a five-decibel noise reduction scenario would lower hypertension and coronary heart disease, enough to provide economic benefits totaling about $3.9 billion annually. Neitzel is also principal investigator on a joint study with Apple. They're collecting sound levels using an app on Apple's popular devices. The study looks at long-term exposure to both headphones and environmental sound levels. So far, they've collected more than 70 million hours of sound levels from Apple's research app on its watches and iPhones. This is a really first-of-its-kind study where we're recruiting people across the entire United States. And people who opt to participate in this study can contribute data uh, from listening to headphones that they do through their phone. Uh, If they have an Apple Watch, they can contribute noise levels that their watch is measuring in the environment. Some of the latest findings of the Apple Hearing Study published this year found that one in four participants had a daily average sound exposure to traffic and industrial noise that was higher than the WHO, the World Health Organization's recommended limit of 70 decibels. Neitzel says that by the time the pandemic struck, he'd already been compiling noise exposure data. It was unintentional, but this time frame did allow the team to gather baseline noise data pre-pandemic. The data then showed a shift during the worst of the pandemic in the states studied, California, New York, Texas, and Florida. Across those four states, we saw uniformly there was about a three decibel drop that happened right around that lockdown date. A three-decibel drop. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but people who live close to highways and transportation hubs, they probably would have noticed this change. It definitely demonstrated that the impact of the lockdown affected more than people's behavior. It actually affected their noise exposures uh, for the positive. Um, And we actually saw that those exposures started to creep back over time as some of the uh, lockdown restrictions were lifted. So uh, while we didn't set out to study this, the uh, data that we have do suggest that with behavior changes, we can actually make our country quieter. Decibels are expressed on a logarithmic scale, which means that a small change in decibels represents a big change in sound energy per unit volume. A three-decibel cut actually trims the energy or the sound density in half. Here's me talking at our typical podcast level. Now, here's me talking three decibels lower than that. Did you perceive any change? Hear anything different? If not, again, don't worry. It's a perception thing. You might not notice, but the sound energy knows that the difference has happened. 
Neitzel says a person with normal hearing would notice a five decibel reduction in sound. Besides measuring intensity, sound researchers are also interested in a sound's frequency, meaning a sound's pitch. That's measured in terms of hertz or cycles per second. This is a register of the treble to bass frequencies, like the low rumble of aircraft, the bass of a car stereo, or a train going by. I lived right near the the railway crossings. So I was always sensitive to sounds when I was very young. So it was always something I was keyed into. Dr. Erica Walker grew up in a small rural town outside of Jackson, Mississippi. So every day, it seemed like 24 hours a day, um, the trains would, cargo trains, mostly freight trains, would, would pass through the neighborhood. But then there was also this sort of vibrational component to it. So when you would be at the dinner table or doing your homework at your desk, you know, the trains, you would hear the horns, you would hear the little warning bells, but then you would feel your desk shake or your table shake or your milk at dinner shake. Walker says she didn't think about how to stop the noise because there was nothing she could do about it. It was out of her control. I grew up poor, so it was just like one of those things that it was a part of your soundscape. Decades later, in Boston, there was a different kind of noise. Walker moved into a basement apartment below an active family with children. My neighbors above me were like boom, 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 like thumping. And those two small kids ran the length of their floor, which was my ceiling, for like 24 hours a day. And it drove me absolutely insane. Walker says she couldn't focus on her work as an artist at the time, and she couldn't sleep. So she set out with a plan to chronicle the noise. I created a spreadsheet. I started recording when they were loud, and I got like a little sound level meter and started measuring the sound levels um, with hopes that I would take them to court and get them evicted. But the sound levels were actually not that loud. It wasn't capturing what I was feeling. But I'm like, but I can feel it. Like it's, it's vibrating in my chest, and I don't know what that is. The only way she found relief from that basement apartment was to move. Walker is now an assistant professor at the Brown University School of Public Health in the Department of Epidemiology. She says the way we measure sound uses something called A-weighting. There are sounds that you hear and there are sounds that you feel. So with this A-weighted decibel, it's saying that it's only the sounds that you hear that are important and sort of discounts the energy that comes from those lower frequency sounds. So A-weighting removes high and low energy sounds, like the kinds humans don't hear. And Walker says she was only getting a piece of the sound picture. What was extremely insidious about that sound and the sound of the trains that was vibrating on the tables when I was growing up was this low frequency sound, right? And it's something that we really don't measure or regulate or document in any sort of meaningful way for the general public. And so I kind of realized that I'm going to need a much more expensive sound level meter. And that was kind of like the whole thing. I want to get down to the bottom of this lower frequency sound, the metrics that we use to measure it. Part of the reason this is so problematic is that Walker says current measurement techniques fail to accurately represent the noise pollution in our cities, especially in marginalized communities. I feel like the way we measure sound is potentially an environmental justice issue. 
especially because if we use this A-weighted metric and it's underreporting sounds that are associated with living next to a airport or a major highway or a rail line or a community with a lot of firework activity, you're underreporting the true sound condition. And what kind of neighborhoods typically have those kinds of sounds? They're lower income neighborhoods. So if we're using the wrong metrics and underreporting sounds in lower income neighborhoods, then we have a problem. But it's not just metrics. Walker wants to broaden who decides what a neighborhood sounds like. She founded Community Noise Lab to collect sound recordings from residents. So Community Noise Lab was founded to sort of be that. So it's one thing to collect sound data, but how can we use this to impact change in the community? So with Community Noise Lab, we work with communities, we support them. Real-time monitoring, we have an app noise score. Um, We do laboratory-based experiments and we do community engagement activities. But the goal is to work with communities as they address a unique problem or a specific problem. Live concerts, um, we live near a major highway, we would like a sound wall. Or, you know, my neighborhood gets really busy during tourism season. What can I do about that? How is that impacting my my community? Or if there's fireworks going off um, every night, what can we do about that? So it's very policy impact driven. And they can show these accurate dynamic records when they want policymakers to address noise pollution in their neighborhoods. This summer, Walker's heading back to her hometown in Mississippi to introduce residents there to her sound collection app. She'll stay for several years doing extensive sound pollution and environmental justice work. When we talk about noise in our communities, we have to get back to this idea of perception. One person's noise could be another person's music, sometimes literally. In places where a lot of people are basically living their lives on the street, you're gonna have a distinctive sound in each neighborhood. In New York, where I live, Spanish Harlem does not sound like Chinatown. Or the Lower East Side. They all have their own soundtrack. A sound ordinance in one place won't necessarily work in another. Up next, how cities and neighborhoods can create their own soundscapes with an acoustic ecologist. Yep, that's a thing. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Dr. Kenya Williams is an example of what a holistic approach to noise control in cities might look like. I just really want to make the world listen more. That's really, I think that's been my purpose and my calling. Williams is a Portland, Oregon-based acoustic ecologist, meaning he studies the relationship among people, sound, and their environment. And when different communities come together, he says what constitutes noise or sound 
is often one of the first things that can divide neighbors. You hear a symphony in the park, and the symphony is really loud, and no, there, there are no complaints, you know, but a small dance troupe, little black girls are practicing their hip-hop routine, you know, in that same park. Then people start calling, you know, the, the police or calling, you know, some type of complaint line to complain because they have a boombox playing music or playing music that someone may not want to hear. Williams founded Hush Soundscape Planning and Design. The company offers a range of professional services, like evaluating sites and properties based on their acoustics. When you go buy a house, you're probably seeing that house during the daytime. You don't know what's happening in the evening. We can say, this is what's happening at these different intervals when you're not there versus you buying the house and you find out that you know, uh, your neighbor is a chainsaw artist, you know, and they work in their basement at 1 a.m. Williams also collects and composes soundscapes for clients so they can create an auditory experience unique to their living space. And that's the direction he'd like to see cities take as well, intentionally planning urban soundscapes, getting people to actively think about what they hear and what they want to hear. One of Williams' projects included a soundscape tour of a waterfront park in Portland, Oregon, for policy officials, urban planners, and architects. How do I increase their awareness? How do I um, inject them into a um, public space to think differently when they go back and they start to plan and design and create policy for other public spaces. Now soundscape is there, you know? Now it's like, oh, what does this place sound like? Thinking about noise and sound earlier in the city planning process could offer communities more options. William says in the same way that policymakers might decide to dedicate a certain area as a wetland, a park, or a public space, they should also make an intentional space for quiet. A lot of people will venture out into wilderness to experience natural quiet. That's not accessible to everybody. You know, not everyone has that luxury. People should be able to go somewhere in their city and find a slice of quiet. If you live in a city, you know that can be hard to come by, outside or inside. Janet, I can hear some background noise. I'm wondering if I should put my headphones on. Yeah, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about that. So This uh, is me trying to talk with architect Gina Ripple. Just like everyone else, I've had my studio in my city apartment for the past year. Ripple runs a Chicago design firm called Mir Collective and teaches architecture at the University of Virginia. She says that architects have known about noise for decades, but they haven't done a lot about it because building codes haven't been very strict about noise requirements. It's been sort of a slow increase in awareness, at least in the design community. Building codes have slowly increased. Um, and, and maybe the, the bigger change has been the increase in attention to elective codes. Architects partially control the outside noise with thick soundproofing materials. Heavy walls, the kind you might see lining highways that abut residential neighborhoods. 
For inside noise, sound that can travel through structures, the way you control that traditionally is to isolate the offending noisemaker, put some space and materials between the occupant and the HVAC system, for example. And Ripple says there are other things designers and homeowners can do to keep noise out. So it's always a good idea to try to renovate and retrofit older buildings. Um, the ceiling of openings, that's a really good way to retrofit existing buildings uh, to increase the protection against exterior noise, putting in new windows that have better sealants, uh, new doors, protecting other openings like vents, uh, adding insulation. All of these types of retrofits can, can help increase the noise control from exterior to interior spaces. When it comes to new construction, there are alternative materials, Ripple says. Things like acoustic paint and quieter pavements that can reduce vehicle noise. Additionally, adding noise-absorbing materials on the surfaces and facades of homes and buildings and other quiet designs can make a difference. I think a very promising trend is what we call mass timber construction, which is essentially very large panels and beams created out of wood that's glued together. Early results indicate that with one or two sides lined, it can reach a high level of acoustic isolation well beyond building code requirements. There are other competing trends taking us in the opposite direction, though. But Ripple says architects and designers are slowly embracing a more holistic approach that tackles noise before it's in the environment. There's also a lot of, I think, increasingly attention in controlling noise at the source. And so seemingly minor changes like reducing traffic speed, rerouting freight trucks, improving maintenance of roads can make a big difference in the amount of noise that's coming from some of the major noise pollutants like highways. And urban planners and architects are getting some help with that from industrial designers and scientists. Uh, we have been working on capturing light and sound waves using nanoscale materials and uh, uh, structures. On the next Future of Everything, materials that behave like an invisibility cloak for noise. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is deputy editor of The Future of Everything. Our fact checker is Maddie Bender. Our sound designer is Sarah Gibble-Laska. Our producer is Casey Georgie. Kateri Yoakum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>